All right. How are y'all this morning? Deal. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Abby Todd. I'm the pastor here, the campus pastor here. Uh, last week, we talked about what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 10 about what Paul had said in chapter 9, which was that God is sovereign, but because God is sovereign, that brings Paul to hurt for his people because they don't believe in Jesus. And instead of being lazy and apathetic because Paul because God is sovereign, it brought Paul to pray. We talked about how we're called to pray for the lost. An evangelistic church is a prayerful church. And so the rest of chapter 10, where we are this morning, is talking about how people are saved. If Paul wants his fellow kinsmen, the Jews, to be saved, he's now talking about how that happens. What needs to happen? Think about this this morning before we, before we start. What needs to happen for someone to be saved? It's a simple question, but it's an important question. So, in order to answer that question, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. Actually, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word, please. And this is what the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, has to say. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, show us the beautiful simplicity of the gospel so that we can hide it in our hearts and not sin against you. And all these things we ask in your Son's name, amen. 
You can have a seat. This morning I'm going to try to draw out three truths from what we just read. We're going to take it, we're going to go through that entire passage, but I'm going to try to draw out three truths, the main three, primary three truths that I see Paul is making here. One, the gospel is a simple gospel. Two, the gospel is a sufficient gospel. Three, the gospel is the sole gospel. I'm going to say it one more time. It's a simple gospel, it's a sufficient gospel, and it's the sole gospel. I usually don't try for alliteration, but it just worked out. I might have tried to fix in the last one. I was like, man, I got two S's. I'm going to try for the third one. It worked. Some of y'all are like, well, I'll see if it worked. In verses 6 through 8, Paul is doing something that a lot of good teachers do. Before he tells us what the gospel is, he tells us what the gospel isn't. Let's read verses 6 through 8. In fact, you can go ahead and just listen to me. I'm going to read them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. What in the world is Paul saying here? Well, he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. And in Deuteronomy 30, Paul is telling his people that it's well within their reach, it's well within their means to live as God has commanded them. That's what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy 30. But Paul is now adapting Moses' words in order to say something like this. You don't have to go all the way to heaven to find God. You don't have to climb a staircase up to God to find Him. You don't have to go all the way to hell to pull Jesus up from the grave. He already did that. What Paul's saying is the saving message of Jesus Christ is right here, right now, for you. Amen. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. We're going to figure out what that means. In the gospel, God isn't asking you to come to Him. In Christ, He took on flesh and came down to you. And if that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't fill you with a sense of joy and love, go to Saudi Arabia or Iran and see if they think that's something radical. No other single religion in the history of mankind says God comes down to you. Well, what do I mean by that? Muhammad delivers the teachings as prophet so that you can obey and get to God. Buddha shows you the way to nirvana and enlightenment. Buddhism is actually, in a lot of ways, atheistic. There is no God. Hinduism says that God's in the trees and the bugs and the animals. L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology gives you secret knowledge so that you can become God. Humanism says that you're your own God. Christianity says you fell from God, you were separated from God, you deserve the wrath of God. God took His wrath and poured it on His Son, therefore you come back to God, He implants His Spirit and adopts you. And that's called good news. <laughs> Church, Christianity has copyrights on the concept of grace. There is no other single religion that has ever come close to duplicating a message like that. That's why a lot of people go, oh, I think they're all kind of the same. They're all kind of saying the same thing. No, they're not. 
Read this book and tell me that anything other than the fact that a God takes on flesh, becomes one of us, takes our punishment, we believe in Him, we come to God. I pray that as a church we never lose the radical awe factor of the gospel. That's unbelievable. God knelt down, humiliated Himself for idolaters and lawbreakers. What a wonderful and glorious message. The problem begins when we want to complicate that message. Sin wants to inject complexity into that simple gospel. What I mean by that. In the face of such grace and such mercy and such love, my flesh still wants to climb up to God and earn what's mine. I want to compare my sin to other people's sin so that mine doesn't seem as bad and I can be a better Christian and I can seem like I don't need as much grace as they do. I want to feel like I'm a better Christian whenever I've had a better week so I can look back on it and go, I think I was a little bit closer to God this week. I want to look back at the things I did and I was obedient on certain days so that I'm kind of going like, no. In the subtlest of ways, my flesh is raging against the simple gospel. I don't like it. I don't want it. That's why I need the Spirit of God, because without it, I hate the fact that God does all the work and saves me and He gets all the glory. I don't like that. Because every ounce of my flesh says, I want my reputation and my honor, not His reputation and His honor. In a lot of ways, in our heart of hearts, apart from the grace of God, we are all just recapitulating Babel. We just want to build. I want my name. And even in the the subtlest of ways, I want my kingdom to stand. But here's the thing. I'm going to read verses 9 through 10, and you tell me if God leaves any room for human boasting. I'm going to read verses 9 through 10, and you, you tell me if God leaves any room to claim anything. Here we go. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What do we got to do? We got to believe. We got to confess. That's it. There is is no parentheses after that. The gospel demands nothing of you to be saved except repentance and faith. Now obviously we know if anyone's read James, we know that that's going to take a a turn in our hearts and we're going to be made new and we're going to live it out and we're going to have fruits. But at the heart of heart, the crux of the gospel, repent, believe, be saved. You contribute nothing. You are justified by faith and faith alone. And I'm going to be honest with y'all, Abby's flesh doesn't like that. Listen to this quote by Jonathan Edwards. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I quote him a lot. here's, Here's what he says. You contribute nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Now, when I ask people to explain the gospel sometimes, I do this. I know Robert Washington does. Somebody, just just tell them. Don't be offensive about it. Don't be cocky about it. Just ask them, what's the gospel? If it's the most important thing in the world, you shouldn't have a problem asking it. What is the gospel? You know, you'll get a lot of things. Someone says, Jesus died for me and I believe. That's the, you know, that's the gospel. I mean, you, you can flesh that out in a lot of ways. 
Ken Wynn just read about how the fact it's reconciliation. We've read in Romans 8 how it's adoption. God's doing a lot of things. It's like a diamond. You can look at the gospel from a lot of different angles. It's like if you, God, in, this, in the Bible, God's giving us a panorama of everything He's doing. But at the core is salvation through faith. But if you ask people what the gospel is, sometimes you'll go, well, you know, you've got you to gotta live for Him and obey Him, and you know, you've got to be a good person, and you know, you've got to, you know... Sometimes people just trail off. Well, what is the gospel? Well, it's, you know, it's being a good person and, you know, trying to... to no. If someone ever says try in, in the gospel, just stop them there. You're not, you're not trying. God's not going to check the list and go, oh, I think they good hard worker. Did you see it? Did he work hard enough? No. Jesus worked hard enough. And we talked about how... See... Paul believes the gospel is that simple as confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. And that's our message to a lost world. And here's another thing to think about. If that's not our message, if our message isn't that simple, then we're just telling people it's okay to build your own righteousness. If we keep the gospel simple, we're diminishing, we're absolutely eradicating any ground for people to boast. And we're, if, we don't, if we don't keep the gospel that simple, we're just asking them to duplicate the sin of the Jews. See, the Jews don't like that simple gospel. Knowing Jesus means knowing a simple gospel. And when we complicate the gospel, we take away from the glory of His grace. Hell is full of people who wanted to add to the gospel. Heaven is filled with people who just said, I'll take it. We receive it. John Newton. Anybody know who John Newton is? He wrote Amazing Grace. He said this. The true simplicity. I chose John Newton because John Newton, one of his favorite themes in his life was simplicity. I like that because I'm a simple person. The true simplicity, which is the honor and strength of a believer, is the effect of a spiritual perception of the truths of the gospel. It arises from and bears proportion to the sense we have of our own unworthiness, the power and grace of Christ, and the greatness of our obligation to Him. So far as our knowledge of these things is vital and experimental, it will make us simple-hearted. Close quote. Because the gospel is a simple gospel, I want to be a simple-hearted person. God doesn't ask anything more of me than that. Number two, it's a sufficient gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ can save anyone if they have faith in Him. Can save anyone. Jesus Christ is mighty to save, church. Do we believe that? Let me challenge you here. Let me challenge you. That means God can save a neo-Nazi white supremacist if He wanted. We don't watch the news going, eh, they're gone. No, they, it is possible to be saved if you repent and believe in the gospel. There is no one outside the bounds of God's grace. That can be offensive sometimes. What we witnessed yesterday was, for lack of a better term, worldly. 
And what I mean by that, the world says, I value people who look like me and who share my bloodline. The gospel says, I value people who don't look like me and I will give them my bloodline. Which is why I think heaven would be absolutely unbearable for a white supremacist. I mean, let's be honest. We want our church to be a little colony of heaven. An imperfect colony. But we want to be ambassadors and we want to love people in such a way that we can give them a foretaste of what it's going to be like in eternity. Verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Everyone, all. Everyone, all. Paul is going to great lengths to make sure that we understand that the gospel is a universal call and it's for everybody. There is no one hindering anyone from coming to Christ other than their own will. I want to take this opportunity to make sure that we understand the difference between what is traditionally called Calvinism and what is traditionally called Gnosticism. Calvinism is built on the concept of sin, and it upholds that man is so depraved and enslaved to sin that he's completely unwilling to come to God. Gnosticism is built on the concept of knowledge. It upholds that man can only come to God unless he has secret information, and unless he obtains it, he is unable to come to God. Do you understand the difference? The difference is this. The gospel is not secret information. It's free to all. We don't preach an exclusive gospel. We do in the sense that there's only one way. It's the way, the truth, and the life. But we don't preach an exclusive gospel in the sense that it's only for one certain people. This is public knowledge. But there are places where it is not public knowledge. Therefore we go, and we're going to get to that. There is no distinction, Paul says, between Jew and Greek. That means there's no distinction between Robert Washington and I. Sorry, Robert, I'm picking on you again. The reason I pick on Robert is Robert is black. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not black. Robert is older. (laughs) I'm younger. I don't know if he's from California. I don't think he is. But he spent a lot of time in California. I can tell you I ain't from California. I don't know if you noticed. The world would say that Robert and I don't have a lot in common. Then why in the world do Robert and I enjoy spending time together? Why is that? Because both Robert and I believe in the gospel. The gospel came to both of us because God sought both of us. It doesn't matter when I was saved or how I was saved. I mean, we both confessed with our mouths and we both believed in our hearts. That's how he and I come together in the church. And this is the common denominator of people in heaven. Not skin color, not class, not hobbies, not rank. 
The gospel is a simple gospel, but it's a sufficient gospel. What I mean by that, it doesn't matter what I've done, it doesn't matter who I've been, it doesn't matter what my last name is. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover every single evil thing I've ever done, even every single evil thing I've ever said, and to crown me with the righteousness of the one who never said one thing bad, never did one thing evil, he did everything right, and he died for me, and he gave that honor to me. And that's called grace. And y'all, if that doesn't make you joyful, if that doesn't make you happy, if you don't kind of get giddy just thinking about it, you don't understand what Paul means when he says the riches of His grace. He wants to bestow and lavish on us depths of grace that it takes us eternity to find the bottom and we never will. Verse 13, Paul is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that, that call that Paul and Joel are talking about, it doesn't mean call out like I get lost in the grocery aisle and I call out to my wife. It means a desperate cry and a plea. I'm saved today, y'all, because I cried out to Jesus. I cried out. When Roman, you know, Kelly will say sometimes, like, Kelly will be upstairs, I'm... You know, I'm supposed to be looking at the kids, but I went and tried to clean up the kitchen real quick. And one of the kids will cry out. And I'm like, oh, no. My heart sinks. Kelly goes, what's wrong? And I go, I don't know. And then I kind of run over and, you know, one of them tripped. But in that moment, everything that my child knows is to cry out for daddy. And that's the same thing I did when God saved me. And He promises that if we cry out to Him like a little child, the promise is good. Third, the gospel is the soul gospel. When I got back, I spent five months in Uganda. And I came home and uh, my church had been supporting me. They were the main supporters. And I went over to basically give all the deacons and some of the deacons' wives, and it was like a Wednesday night. They wanted me to come up and talk about my mission trip, and um, I was excited to see them. And I remember giving them this presentation of all that the, the Lord had done overseas. People coming to the Lord, building homes, what, what not. And I remember I, I ended with saying something like, there's more work to be done. And I said something like, I, I, I don't remember how I said it, but I remember I said something specifically about the fact that there were more lost people in Africa. People who'd never heard the gospel. And I had this really nice lady come to me, and I know who she is because she's a friend of my mom's. She came down to me after the service, and sweet, and I'll never forget what she said. She, what she said was really nice. She said it to comfort me, but what she really did was dismiss the last five months of my trip. Some of y'all are going, what'd she say? She said, honey, hey, and about those people in Africa, God's not going to send people to hell without a chance to hear the gospel. And I kind of went, 
Think about that for a second, what she just said. And think about, in your mind, just I'm going to give you a moment. Think about how that would have completely dismissed the reason I went. I'm going to scribe this. Unbeknownst to this kind lady, and she is kind. I mean, she was ignorant, but she's kind. I don't say ignorant didn't to denigrate her. She was just she didn't obviously read the Bible, and she obviously wasn't reading Romans chapter ten. What do I mean by that? Unbeknownst to her, she had completely dismissed the very reason we go to tell people about Jesus. The scary thing is that's what thousands upon thousands of Christians actually believe. They think that God owes people a chance to hear the gospel. And what that tells me is this generation has no concept of grace. The whole point of the gospel is that God owes you nothing. Behind her seemingly kind words was a subtle, almost hidden sense of American entitlement and a false sense of fairness like someone owed someone the gospel. Friends, Make no mistake and hear me when I say this. God owes no one a gospel. That's why we call it grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're going to return back to the, to the kind lady here in a second. There is a dangerous myth that persists in the church and it goes something like this. People don't need to hear the gospel to be saved. They can come to know God through nature. Like the pygmies in Africa. You know, you'll go, man, we gotta go tell them about Jesus. And they'll go, well, you know, they know the God. You know, as long as they do what's right and they can, you know, know there's a God, they'll be saved. And that's not true. What they're alluding to is Romans chapter 1. But Romans 1 never says that nature brings us to a relationship with God. It says nature condemns us. And what I mean by that? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We are without excuse. There is not one single human being who will go before God and claim that they didn't know better because they didn't have a gospel. And what God will tell them is, you woke up every single day and there was a sun in the sky, oxygen in the air, trees growing, fields with food. You knew better. You have no excuse. Nature doesn't tell us people have a chance to know Jesus apart from gospel. Nature tells us that people need the gospel. There is no such thing as the good person in Africa who God's going to spare because they're good. There is no one good. That's why Stephen just read Romans 3. What this woman, from one angle, what she was saying was admirable. I mean, she was a kind lady. There's, she's going to have a crown of glory in heaven. Hopefully she'll get corrected when she's there. But she was, what she was trying to do was help me through the fact that there's, you know, God's going to do... No. What was appalling was she had no category for human sin. 
She was living her life like God owed people instead of people owing God. Paul makes a radically different picture. Instead of making excuses, what does Paul say? Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. This is like the magnum opus. This is like the, this is like the prime statement for missions. I'm sure Josh Cornett and Jacqueline have this memorized. I'm going to read it. How then will they call on Him and who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him and who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Paul says, you want to know how the gospel saves? You go and proclaim the gospel. People must hear the gospel in order to believe it. Faith comes from hearing it. People kind of go back and forth about whether he actually said it or not. There's an old theologian back in the medieval times, and he says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that? That's, I mean... Did he read Romans 10? You can't preach the gospel without words, because people got to hear it. I think, I mean, and people kind of slandered him for saying that. What I think what he was saying was, if you're going to, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to act like it. Amen. Let's give him credit for that. But theologically, I'm going to use this instance to critique him and tell him, no, they got to hear it first. I hear a lot of times people go, hey, you want to come to my church? Yeah, sure. Hey, hey 1030, be here, I'll pick you up. And you kind of go, hey, you know that person? Yeah, just preach the gospel. No, that's, that's not preaching the gospel. That's inviting them to church where hopefully they'll hear the gospel. Whether they're in the deserts of Africa or they're in a pew in America, people won't be saved by absorbing it by osmosis. Yeah, I sat next to that Billy Graham's son all my life. I'm a Christian. No. If they don't hear the gospel, if they don't hear it and they don't believe it, if they don't confess Him, if they don't believe it with all their heart, the Bible says it's very clear, they will go to hell. And I don't say that, let me make sure you all understand, I don't say that just kind of uh, pontificating, that's a big word, I don't say that in a, in a way that I'm just, I'm glad they're going there. I say that like Paul, it breaks my heart. What this woman also said, it wasn't just unbiblical, it was illogical. And what I mean by that is, if people can go to heaven apart from the gospel, why in the world are we traveling thousands of miles to give them the chance to reject it? You get what I'm saying? If, if people can come to God without the gospel, let's call the cornets up right now and give him his old job back. The reason we evangelize the lost is because we believe there's no other way for people to be saved other than to hear it and to believe it. That's why we go. We don't do it to improve people's lives. We do it so that God can pluck them from hell. Now, I also think it's worth addressing. There is a really encouraging trend in the church. Well, it's a startling trend in the church. It's actually a really encouraging trend right now in the world missions. Anybody who's a missionary in, in the Middle East can tell you that this, this, this movement's going on right now, and I think people hear it and they think and they use this. I'll just say it. 
Right now, there's a movement that is documented by the IMB. And a lot of Muslims are coming to the gospel because God reached them in a dream. Have you heard of this? Leaders and missionaries have attested that they have come to villages and people said, I, God told me about Jesus in, the, in a dream. And I think that this is an important time to affirm that God is sovereign and He can do whatever in the world He wants. Amen. But let's also not make sure that we're not making the exception the rule. Because as far as Paul is concerned, the rule is verse 14. How then will they call on Him in who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in them who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? I mean, what a cogent argument. I mean, that's just rhetoric. Paul is making and developing an argument. And, and these are called rhetorical questions. And, and in case you're missing it, the answer is pretty clear. They can't and they won't. Paul concludes chapter 10 by pointing to the irony of the Gentiles believing in the gospel, and that's this. The Jews received the oracles of God. They didn't believe in the gospel when Jesus came. So God sent the gospels to the Gentiles, and they believed. Now the Gentiles are delivering the good news to the people of God, and the Jews are going to be saved eventually, as we're going to see in Romans 11, by the very people that they deemed unclean. And God says it's to His glory that that's the way it's going to happen. You know what that tells me? If God can come and save Jews by Gentiles, that means God can save someone who's been in that pew every single Sunday by someone who just learned it last week. Amen. We need to make sure we preach the gospel to the poor, to the immigrant, to the, uh, to the refugee. But we also need to make sure we preach the gospel to the person that hasn't missed a Sunday school in 50 years. Because both need to hear it and both need to believe it. You must confess and you must believe. It's a simple gospel, it's a sufficient gospel, and it's a soul gospel. I wanted to end this morning with a quick word on stereotypes and labels. I have often heard that predestination kills evangelism, and I believe chapter 10 of Romans kills that argument. Predestination doesn't kill evangelism. Predestination is how we know people are going to get saved when we go. I believe the Bible makes these two points very clear, and I believe they're not mutually exclusive. I believe they're not contradictory. I believe I see them very clearly in Romans 9 and Romans 10. I'm going to make them here. You're going to think, hmm, those don't make sense. The Bible says they do. Here you go. Sinners will not be saved unless God elects them to be saved and draws them unto Himself. That's number one. That's what Romans 9 says. Number two, sinners will not be saved unless we go and tell them about Jesus. The Bible says both. The same gospel that says it's all up to God also says it's in our hands. There is no need for licentious, apathetic, lazy Christianity. God is in control, but He's given the keys to the kingdom to us with the gospel. 
How are they to hear without someone preaching? I'm, I'm just, just to be fun. How are that person at Kroger supposed to hear without you telling them? How is that person at your job supposed to hear without you preaching to them? How is that person, that cousin, that mother-in-law, that father, that daughter, that sister supposed to hear without you telling them? The gospel is not just a way to a better life. It is a necessity if people are to come to know the risen and living God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We will take to the gospel. We will take the gospel to the lost. We will do that. We are going to do that. We have been doing it. It's a part of our DNA. Paul says, this world out here, Oxford, Covington, these are a people who have plenty of excuses, but in the end, before God, their mouths will be shut and they have none. They have no excuse. What we need to do as a church is we don't need to make our own excuses as to why we're not taking the gospel to them. My dad used to say, excuses are like butts. Everybody has one. Not us. We take the gospel because the Bible says that souls hang in the balance. Will we take the gospel to the lost? Will we talk about Jesus to our colleagues? Or will we make excuses? Let's pray. Gracious, divine, heavenly Father, we cling to Your Holy Word. We cling to Your promises. And Lord, we, it's with a heavy sense of obligation and duty and joy that we gladly say, Send me. Lord, the gospel is not simply our ticket. It is our way of life. We cling to it every day. And millions of people need it and need to call on you lest they perish. Give us a sense of urgency as a church, Lord. Equip us. Give us wisdom, as James says. We ask for it. We beg for it. Give us discernment. Give us urgency. Give us love for the lost. so that they can not only hear about Jesus, but they can see Him in us. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen.